1985, a former shopkeeper's apprentice and later science student named Herbert George Wells wrote a novel which was to become a classic and a stimulus for many other books and films on the same subject. The book was called The Time Machine. It told the story of the time traveller who built a machine that was able to transport him both back and forwards in time. The book is popular because such a possibility fascinates us. The historically minded would like to go back in time and clarify all those unanswered questions. From the recent past, did Lee Harvey Oswald really kill President Kennedy? To the beginnings of time, how did the world begin? I suspect though that most of us, given a choice, would like to travel forward in time to know the future and what will happen. Not just the near future, will Tim Henman or maybe even his daughter ever win Wimbledon? But the end of history, how it will end, how the world will end. The question I want to leave with you this evening is, if you could visit the future and then come back from the future, how would it affect, you think, the way that you live now? If you knew what was going to happen at the end of time, what impact that would, would that have if you travelled back to the present? Now, such a possibility is, is an impossibility, as far as human beings are concerned. We are characters in the story, in his story. We live at a particular point on the continuum, on the timeline. But the author of the story, the one who placed us there, stands outside of the timeline, as it were, described within the limits of human language as the God who inhabits eternity. And he alone can tell us, if he chooses to do so, how the story began and how the story will end. Facts we can never discover fully for ourselves the time machines are an impossibility. Uh, thus the question that a man, a good man, asked the author, faced with very painful experiences that he couldn't understand, and he's part in the story. And the author said to him, where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Job 38 verse 4. Now the author of the story, which includes our history, has, because we were not there, told us what happened at the beginning, when he laid the earth's foundations. And you'll find it described within human limitations of language in the opening two chapters of this book, the Bible, in the first book, the book of Genesis. But he has also told us, again within the limits of human language, how the story will end. And you will find that described in the last book in this great book, the Bible, the book of Revelation. In it, the future is revealed to a man named John who is told to write down what he sees and what will take place so that others reading will realise what will happen and be able to act accordingly. Now, the response God intends to this revelation and why he gave it is not fatalism, inshallah but activism if this is going to happen in the future for sure 
then it must affect how I live now in the present. We learn what will happen in the future and I want to suggest this evening we then come back from the future. And this evening I want to simply to look at one of the key passages in this book of Revelation which describes the key events surrounding the end of the story. Then having looked at these future certainties, I want to focus on our present priorities. What we should do if this really is going to happen. So read with me, or open your Bible anyway, we'll read it together as we go through. Revelation chapter 5. And you need a Bible, they're in the pews, if you can't see one, ask someone to give you one. You really do need one to follow along. It's page 1237, if you need a church Bible, page 1237. Now, the language of the book of Revelation is highly symbolic. And we don't have the time, and it's not within the scope today, to explore the full meaning behind all the symbols. What I want to do is focus on the broad themes, on what I would call these future certainties, which this chapter reveals. Look, if you will, at the end of chapter 4, which concludes with God seated on his throne, the Lord God in all his glory, seated on his throne, the focus of worship and praise, day and night, and ceasingly by all the heavenly hosts. Verse 11. They sing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and had their being. But, when we come to chapter 5, there is a problem. Then I saw, in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. In the right hand of God, the hand of authority, the one seated on the throne, is a scroll, a papyrus scroll of course, with writing on both sides. It is full. There is no room to add any more writing. Which is sealed with seven seals. What is the scroll? One writer says, it represents God's eternal plan. It symbolizes God's purpose with respect to the entire universe throughout history. And John sees a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, verse 2, Who is worthy to break the seals and to open the scroll? There is a problem. Who can unlock the scroll? Who can unlock God's purposes for human history, as God intends? John tells us, and he describes his response, I wept and I wept, because no one, verse 3, but no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. It is such a serious issue. The whole of human history and God's plan for history hinges on this scroll, God's plan, and there is no one who can open it. But John is told not to weep. Verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Notice the past tense. He has triumphed. The future is assured because of the past and what has already happened. The future is certain because of this key person and a key event. The key person is the one described by these two titles, both of which refer back to the Old Testament and what God promised 
years and years, centuries, generations before. He is described as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. You need to go way, way back in Israelite history. Right back to the beginning. Abraham, the father of Israel. Isaac. Jacob. Father of the twelve sons who became the twelve tribes of Israel. On his deathbed, he calls each one of them in and he prophesies concerning their future. And he speaks about Judah, one of his sons. Although he's not the oldest, he will be the greatest. The leader of the leading tribe. Genesis 49, 9 and 10. This is what he says to Judah. Notice the words. You are a lion's cub, O Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. Now I don't have time to look into all that. But what he's saying is all God's purposes for the nations are fulfilled in the one who comes from the from the tribe of Judah, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. This is fulfilled in this person. He is also described, secondly, as the root of David. This is a prophecy that comes far later from the prophet Isaiah, six, seven hundred years before Christ. Verses that we read at Christmas time often as our service of lessons and carols. Isaiah 11, verse 1. A shoot will come from the 